Good morning. Well, today is our third study uh, in the New Testament letter of two Corinthians, which, uh, as uh, most of us know, was written by the Apostle Paul, and it was written to the, the church in Corinth, uh, an ancient church that Paul founded, and uh, he founded this church on his second missionary journey, and we can read all about that if you want to read how that all happened. Go to the book of Acts in the New Testament and chapter 18. And being the founder and father of their faith, Paul continued to have a real concern for the spiritual welfare of these Christians. And his desire was that this church should flourish, that uh, he wanted them to bring honour to Jesus, and he wanted them to be a godly example before the, the people who were living in the city of Corinth. Now, some of the Corinthian Christians responded positively to Paul, but others said, Paul is not a guy who can be trusted. He's not a genuine apostle. And there were some people within Corinth who attacked Paul's leadership, and they accused him of inconsistencies, and they impugned his motives, and they questioned his credentials. And this must have been incredibly painful to Paul because he put so much of his life, he sacrificed so much to serve that church in Corinth. And 2 Corinthians is essentially Paul's response to those who question his authority and integrity. A little bit of background there before we read the scriptures this morning. And uh, Sue is going to come to read to us today from chapter 2. So if you've got your Bibles on, I do encourage you Bring your Bibles on a Sunday morning, um, if not in paper copy, at least an iPad or on, on mobile phone, and, uh, and, and just follow through. And also a notepad as well, uh, because there may be something quite profound that uh, probably Dan will say, not less, 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 less so me, and uh, you can write that down and remember that for later. Thank you, Sue. Good morning. We're going to start at the very last bit of chapter one, because otherwise Paul starts off in mid-sentence. I call God as my witness, and I stake my life on it, that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, because it's by faith you stand firm. So, I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you, for if I grieve you, Who is left to make me glad but you, whom I have grieved? I wrote as I did, so that when I came I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you, that you would all share my joy. For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart, and with many tears. Not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. If anyone has caused grief, he hasn't so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him, so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive... I also forgive. And what I've forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I've forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we're not unaware of his schemes. 
Now, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the, door had opened, uh, the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I didn't find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ amongst those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are an aroma that brings death. To the other, an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. Thank you, Sue. Does it look like anyone you know? I came across a job description for um, the perfect pastor, and it reads like this. The perfect pastor preaches exactly 10 minutes, during which time he makes us laugh, he inspires us, he illuminates our understanding, teaches us the deep things of God, condemns sin without ever hurting anyone's feelings. He works from 7am until midnight and is also the church cleaner, caretaker and odd job man. He never forgets anyone's name and spends most of his time praying to God for all of them. He has a wonderful prophetic gift in that he knows when someone is sick and needs a visit even without anyone telling him about it. He also remembers everyone's birthday and anniversary in his congregation. He also spends most of his time preparing to speak God's word as well as focusing on children's work, youth work, older people's work, ministry to the marginalised, door-to-door and street evangelism. The perfect pastor eats nutritiously, gets his rest, exercises daily, and is always there to listen to you night and day. He makes 15 home visits a, a, a day, and is always in his office when needed. He is 29 years old, and has 40 years experience. He doesn't overburden the church finances, so he holds down a full-time secular job as well as working 70 hours a week in church ministry. The perfect pastor is always in someone else's church. (laughs) Who would be a church leader? And there have been moments, uh, certainly in the last 30 years of uh, my ministry, when I have probably uttered those words. Who would be a church leader? There are times in church life when the skies are blue and the sun is shining and the birds are singing merrily in the trees. Those times when being a pastor is perhaps the most wonderful and inspiring and truly satisfying vocation on earth. There are times when people are regularly coming to faith. The majority are growing deeper in, in their relationship with Jesus. Uh, folk are excited about church. Prayers are being answered. New ventures are being successful. Finances are increasing. Children and youth works are fruitful, touching the lives of many young people. And during these times, as a pastor, you open your Bible and God speaks to you. And you are so inspired that you can prepare a message for the church in about 15 minutes. Such messages are 99% inspiration and 1% perspiration. Now, having been in ministry for 30 years, I know that 
those experiences are not the norm. Not for most of the time anyway. And there are times when church life can be a little bit more like 1% inspiration and 99% perspiration. And when the skies are grey. And when you can't get anything right, uh, do anything right by anyone. And where God appears to be nowhere to be found. And on those days, you'd probably say, and most pastors would say, who would be a leader? And I'm sure that that was Paul's experience also. Paul was poor. He earned a meagre living by manual labour. He was under constant persecution and suffering. He was homeless. And to top it off, he was criticised uh, for not being a very impressive public speaker. And when the Corinthian church was exposed to other more wealthy, more impressive leaders, they started to think less and less of the Apostle Paul. They even became ashamed of their founding pastor. And throughout 2 Corinthians, Paul responds by showing that uh, their elevation, the elevation of these other Christian leaders, simply because of their wealth or their eloquence, was actually a betrayal of Jesus. And Paul informs the Corinthians that they had a totally distorted value system. And Paul says that the true Christian leadership is not about status, and it's not about self-promotion, but rather it's about servanthood and humility. And Paul shows us that his job isn't to be impressive, rather it is to point people to the one who is impressive, And that's Jesus. And in this chapter that Sue read to us, Paul demonstrates to us the very best qualities of what it is to be a Christian leader. Qualities that should be replicated not only in pastors and church elders, but in everyone who has leadership responsibility in whatever ministry. But even more than that, these qualities that we're going to look at this morning are desirable in all Christians. Now, I've read through this chapter probably about 20 or 25 times this week, just to understand it, actually, to tell you the truth. I'll be perfectly honest with you. And I read it in many different versions. And as I read through, I spotted uh, eight qualities of a good leader. And uh, Paul demonstrates uh, these quite wonderfully. And I just want us this morning to walk through this passage. So if you brought your Bibles with you today, keep your Bibles open and we'll be referring to some of these verses. It's a great way to do this, I think, because uh, many of us probably struggle when it comes to some of Paul's writings. We think, what on earth is he talking about? Who can help me with this? Well, when we do this together and then we follow that up in our life groups in the week, it's a great way for us to begin to understand what the scriptures are actually teaching. Okay, let's go for it. Uh, First of all, a good leader is someone who is prepared to be criticised for doing the right thing. Now, Dan informed us last week, in last week's study, that Paul intended to visit this church in Corinth on the way to Macedonia and on the way back from Macedonia. But instead of visiting them twice, as he'd originally promised, he sent them a letter And this was a very painful letter. It was a letter that caused him many tears. 
And because he changed his plans, he was accused by some of the people in Corinth that he himself was was fickle and changeable and inconsistent and erratic. And some people in Corinth said, this guy keeps changing his mind, he can't be trusted. He says one thing, and then he says another. But the reason that Paul changed his mind and sent him a letter rather than visit them was actually for their benefit, not for Paul's. You see, Paul was thinking of them. The previous visit that he'd had to Corinth was because uh, he needed to confront some of them about uh, some issues. And it was a painful visit for them. And he didn't want to go back there and inflame this situation again. And he didn't want to cause them further heartache by just turning up at Corinth. So he thought it was better to write them a letter, take the sting out of the situation. But as it turned out, the letter that he wrote was also very painful, even though he didn't mean it to be so. Because his desire was to bring healing, not hurt. Now, what's that got to do with the price of bread? What's that got to do with our lives today? I don't know about you, but if you, you know... Have you ever attempted to do the right thing? Your motives were good, but somehow your best intentions backfired on you. Have you ever experienced that? Maybe that in doing what you intended to be for good, that you were misunderstood and criticised. I can certainly relate to that many, many times. There are times that I have intended to do the right thing for other people. My motives were good, but I was criticised or misunderstood. And that hurts, doesn't it? That hurts. But you know what? As I look at those occasions in my life, if I had my time all over again, I probably would have made the same decision. I probably would have done the same thing. Simply because it was the right thing to do. And all of us as Christians, we stand or fall on our own personal integrity. And leaders are people, whichever form of leadership you're in, it may be within church leadership, some church ministry, it may be in the community, leadership at work, or even leadership in the home. As leaders, often we stick our heads above the parapet, knowing that we'll get shot at. And the first uh, point I want to just bring out as a challenge this morning is, are we prepared to do the right thing, even if the right thing is the hard thing? Have you got that? Are we prepared to do the right thing, even if the right thing is the hard thing? Because Paul was. That was a hard thing for him to do. I suppose the easiest option would have been for him to go and fulfill the promise that he had made to them, but he knew that that wasn't the right thing by the Corinthians, so therefore he knew that he was going to get shot at. So he decided to do the right thing, which was the hard thing. Challenge. Okay. Second thing that we see here is that a good leader is prepared to be emotionally vulnerable with others. Now, Paul in this passage is not afraid to open his heart to the Corinthians. In verse 4, he speaks to them about this letter that he wrote, this letter that he wrote to them with great distress and anguish of heart. And with many tears. And the thing that I love about Paul here is open, he's emotionally vulnerable, and he's utterly transparent with them. 
And I must say that that's something that I'm, I'm learning. Uh, and I'm on that journey of learning these lessons about emotional vulnerability. You see, as British people, we are quite stoic, aren't we? You know, stiff upper, la- uh, upper lip and, um, and uh, all that old boy. And uh, never show your feelings. And that's the way that we are as British people. You know, th- th- that, I'm sure, sounds a little bit familiar. There was a generation of church leaders not that long ago that hid behind their title and status as a pastor or a vicar or a church minister. And there are some of you who will have been aware of that and around in those days where people did that. When I started ministry, I say 30 years ago, it was quite unusual for people in the congregation to refer to the pastor by his Christian name. Now, I found it incredibly strange that I was being referred to as Pastor Jonathan by people three times my age and also by people my own age. And as I look back, you know, it's, it, it's a little bit surreal. And um, looking back to my first church, the, there was no occasion at any time that I ever referred to my senior pastor, I was the assistant, never did I refer to him by his Christian name. I think I would have got the sack. You know, there was that kind of air of the way that people were in those days. And I also remember being told that pastors don't have any friends from within their own church congregation. And these things were taught. And these things were actually taught in Bible college when I was there. And reasons were given for that. Now, you know, looking back, you know, I think that that advice is utterly odd. Um, Unhealthy. In the extreme. But because such barriers had been erected, many pastors in those days were often reticent to show their humanness. Yeah, are you with me? They were uh, not really able to show any weakness whatsoever. And they were expected to project a kind of professionalism that never ever allowed a pastor to, pres- to, to give their true feelings or show any kind of emotional vulnerability. They were the pastor. You can't have pastors going around, you know, sort of uh, opening the hearts and shedding many tears. What's the world coming to? And that was the kind of uh, idea around. And some of you might have been quite familiar with that kind of approach if you've been a Christian any length of time. But it's sheer nonsense, isn't it? You know, when I think of you, you make me cry often. I suppose you do. Sometimes with joy. And sometimes with sadness. And I thank God that I am able to live my life alongside you. And that you have allowed that. And that's wonderful to me. And I would say that in any person who is a leader, this is an important thing. That we are ourselves. That we don't pretend to be something that we're not. That we don't project an image of ourselves, that we are who we are, that we're the same on a Monday morning as we are on a Sunday. Yeah? That is so important. And even if that leadership that I'm talking about is leadership at work or in your community in some way, it's so important to be an emotionally vulnerable person with whoever you're with. Third point that we see this. 
A good leader is someone who balances discipline and love. Now, in the um, New Testament, uh, in, in the NIV version of uh, this passage, if you've got an NIV Bible there, you will see a subtitle uh, for the passage from uh, verse 5 to verse 11, where it says, Forgiveness for the offender. Now, what Paul is talking about here is the need to forgive a member of the Corinthian church. And it appears that there is a man there that has done something wrong, he sinned in some way, and the church has inflicted some kind of punishment on him. Now, it's a little bit infuriating, really, because we're not really told too much about this. We're not told what he had done wrong. We're not really told what punishment they'd inflicted upon him. Very annoying, as I say. But my guess, and it's only a guess, my guess is that what we're talking about here is the man, the same man who was expelled from the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 when we looked at that passage last year. Some of you might not have been around, so let's uh, remind ourselves about this man. And you can flick back to 1 Corinthians 5 if you like. There was a man there in the Corinthian church who was having a sexual affair with his stepmother, of all people. And the, the church knew what was going on, but instead of being ashamed of it and stopping it, some of the people within the Corinthian church even boasted about this. It's mind-boggling, isn't it? And Paul, on that occasion, in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5, tells the church, hand this man over to Satan. Now, I think that that's a hugely troubling verse, don't you? Hand that man over to What on earth could Paul possibly have been talking about? What could he mean by those words? Well, I'll give it a, I'll give it a go to explain that. Paul is looking at the world as the domain of Satan. And he is just looking at the, he's looking at the church as the domain of God. So by handing over this man to Satan... He would be placed, in Paul's mind, placed outside of the sphere of Christian fellowship. Hopefully, he will become so disenchanted with his sin that he will actually come to his senses. Perhaps by being away from the people of God. He might nostalgically remember the things of God, the good times, the corporate worship, the fellowship that he has with God's people, and therefore realize the error of his ways, which would leave the door wide open for his restoration. Now, if Paul's words here in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 are about this same man, it appears that uh, this restoration that Paul desired actually came about. And he encourages the church to now forgive this man, comfort him, to reaffirm their love for him. You see, it appears that there were some people in the Corinthian church that embraced a philosophy which we see around in today's world. It's a live and let live philosophy. The idea is something along the lines of God loves us and he forgives us always, so it doesn't really matter how we live. But you see, what they didn't realize was that this man was actually undermining the testimony of the church. And he was dishonoring the name of Jesus. So Paul got him excluded, not to punish him, and that's so important. 
You know, that really, really is important. It wasn't to punish him, but it was ultimately to restore him to the Lord, to restore the bad name of the church, uh, and the, that, that church was getting in the, in the city. Now, there is such a thing as tough love. And I think it's very important to recognize that discipline is as important within the church as it is within the family. You know, all good parents discipline their children. The Bible teaches us that uh, in Proverbs 22, verse 6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. I love being a granddad. You didn't know that, did you? I really do. And um, I'm going to embarrass Sean a little bit now. But it's a pleasure uh, for Julie and me to observe Sean's and Dan's parenting values and skills. You know, Julie and I have talked about this. We just love the way that uh, the both of them uh, bring up uh, the parenting skills that they have in bringing up uh, Emily and Eli. And I know that uh, they're only six and four and yet to, yet to encounter teenage uh, years. But as we look at them, parenting is full of fun and care and love, but there's also discipline in family life. And one method of discipline that they use is the, the so-called naughty step. I don't know if any of you have used that in your homes, the naughty step. And uh, I think it's quite a, a brilliant idea. The punishment is proportional to the age. And if the kids are naughty, they're put to sit on the bottom step of the stairs for the number of minutes of their age. So Eli, who is four, will sit on the naughty step for four minutes. Emily will sit for six minutes and so on. And it's, it's really important that consistent, uh, proportional and loving discipline is a part of uh, family life. And following, and this is the point that I'm getting at here, following the minutes on the naughty step, usually with lots of tears, Dan or Sean will then embrace Emily or Elijah. And they will talk about the issue that caused them to be put on the naughty step in the first place. I know that all children are different, all families are different, and you know if that works for you, that's great. It may not work for you, but it works in, in their context. Now, if you understand that, you'll understand what's happening here. Paul is telling the church at Corinth that following the discipline of this man, the naughty step, if you like, there needs to be lots of love and lots of forgiveness. That this man that they put out of fellowship, they expelled because of the way that he was living his life and the way that he was bringing the church into disrepute and dishonoring the name of Jesus, that he was to be brought back amongst them you see, punishment was never the goal. It was always about restoration and reconciliation. As someone said, love without discipline encourages a self-indulgent life. Discipline without love encourages bitterness and rebellion. What good parent would allow their child to play with an electric socket or a gas fire? You see, there are things which are the equivalents of electric sockets and gas fires uh, in our lives as adults as well. And the issue here that Paul is dealing with, to put it bluntly, there were two people having nookie that shouldn't have been having nookie, if you don't mind me putting it like that. And if you do, have a chat with Dan and he can have a word with me. You see, let me 
cut to the chase here. God loves us and has given human beings the wonderful gift of sexual desire and pleasure. It's a gift that God has given to be enjoyed within the context of a lifelong commitment. God is not some spoil sport. Absolutely not. It was God who thought of sex in the first place. But because God knows what is best for us, it's always wise to take his advice on these matters. You see, I imagine that these Corinthians must have been saying that what this man and his stepmother were doing was no one else's business. They might have said, well, they're consenting adults, or words to that effect. The kind of arguments that we hear today. But Paul says, essentially, yes, it is someone else's business, because first of all, it affects the people involved, who are deliberately living outside of God's will. It also affects the witness of the church, and it also affects the name of Jesus being dragged in the mud by the community. You see, in today's society, there is an acceptance that sex is no longer reserved for marriage. And what society says, largely, is that whoever decides to wait is thought of as odd. And the pressure is particularly on Christian young people to conform to the, uh, the standards of society today instead of uh, adapting to God's values. And I would say as tenderly as possible, you know, if any of this fits with, with, with anybody this morning, is choose God's way. Choose God's way, as difficult as that might be on times. Your Paul shows, shows that discipline is driven by love, just as my words are right now. And if there's absence of love, then discipline becomes judgmentalism. And discipline becomes Phariseeism, and that's always a bad thing in church life. A good leader is also aware of the spiritual dimension of life. If you look at uh, verse 11, one reason here that Paul encourages the Corinthians to love and forgive the man in question is so that Satan doesn't outwit them. And Paul says we're not unaware of his schemes. Now, godly leaders are acutely aware that we are living in a world where there is a cosmic battle going on, a cosmic battle between the forces of, of heaven and the forces of hell. And that Satan is not some mythical, impish character with a forked tail, but he is an evil genius whose desire it is to cause Christian people to fall and churches to be harmed. And Paul is very, very aware in, uh, of this dimension. On another occasion, he wrote uh, to the Ephesians, he says, Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. And later on in this uh, letter, in chapter 10, verse 4, he says, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have the divine power to demolish strongholds. And you see, we need to remind ourselves that um, beyond our physical lives, there is a spiritual reality. And that we ignore this reality at our peril. And Paul encourages here the Corinthians and us 
not to allow Satan to outwit us and not to be unaware of his schemes. Carrying on in our list, the good leader is someone who prioritizes the gospel of Christ. Look at verse 12. We're told that uh, Paul went to preach the gospel in the city, uh, the gospel of Christ in the city of Troas. Now, can I say to you this morning that one of the greatest dangers for Tamworth Elim Church is found in an area of our greatest strength. One of the greatest dangers of Tamworth Elim Church is found in an area of our greatest strength. Now, we are known throughout Tamworth as being people who reach out in love to the vulnerable and the marginalised and uh, the people who live in isolation and people that are reached throughout our community projects, young and old. But as important as these works are to us, and they are very, very important, our priority remains the life-transforming gospel of Christ. What is the gospel? Well, Paul gives us a definition in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you, you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved. But what is the gospel, Paul? He goes on to say, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. You see, when a person's life is changed by the power of the gospel, good works will always be the outcome. They will then have a new desire to reach out with the love of Christ. That change within their lives will be seen within practical ways in their lives of befriending the lonely and isolated, or feeding the poor, or supporting the marginalized, or helping the orphan and the widow. And we need to make sure that the gospel is the gospel as defined by Paul, that it doesn't become a social gospel, a social gospel that loses its power to transform a person's life. You see, I've heard many people over the years quoting uh, supposedly St. Francis of Assisi, where he is supposed to have said, preach the gospel at all times, when necessary, use words. You see, and, and that saying is very often carted out when someone wants to suggest that Christians are talking about the gospel far too much, but what they need to do is to live the gospel. And that's very often the context of that saying being brought out. But I've got three problems with that. First of all, there is absolutely no record anywhere in the history books of St. Francis ever coming out with that. Secondly, he didn't live that way. Because Francis was known as much for his preaching as he was for his lifestyle. And thirdly, and most importantly, if we don't tell people about the love of God, how will they know? That is so important. Let's move on quickly. Six. A good leader discerns the will of God. Look at verse 13. Paul says that he went into the city of Troas to preach the good news of Jesus and that the Lord had opened the door for him, yet he still had no peace of mind. Now, I think that this is probably one of the hardest things in leadership. Um, when the Lord appears to open a door for you, and um, it may be that God is, is, is appearing to bless a ministry or create an opening or an opportunity, but you have no real peace about that. 
Now, I've been in that position many, many times as, as a church leader. Many times, many illustrations I can share with you. But let me just share one which happened a couple of years ago. Um, we had conversations with the, the Samaritans. Now, I think the Samaritans are a superb organization, a wonderful charity, and I really commend their work. And we had conversations with the Samaritans about um, them being our tenants in the top house of the manor house complex. And everything was going forward, and we'd had documents uh, written up, and the contracts were there ready to sign. And then on the 11th hour... Actually, it was closer to 11.59. It was the day before we were going to sign the contract. So I said to the leadership team, do you know what, guys? I think we're doing this wrong. I really do. I've just got no no peace about this. And and, and we talked and prayed about it, and we walked around the building. And as a leadership team, we we just had all the same feeling about this, that this was not the right thing. It was pretty tough, I know, on the, on the Samaritans because they needed to then go and find another home. But there was just no peace. There, there was a door which was open wide to us. We, we were going to walk through it. And then we were just prevented from doing so with this sense of no peace. And all the leaders re- re- agreed that we should retain the building and use it for our ministries. And uh, that was a close call because looking back now, If we had had a tenancy agreement as their landlords, we would be in trouble. Simply because we don't even have enough room for doing everything that we need to do now, let alone give another part of our building away in a tenancy agreement. And what I'm trying to say there is that we need to be discerning. Because not every open door is an open door. And we can sometimes be too quick to claim that a door is an open door and that the Lord wants us to walk through it, especially when that apparent open door coincides with our own desires. We need to be really careful on these things. Okay. A good leader sees himself or herself as captive to King Jesus. Again, in verse 14, if you look at that, but thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. That's a very, very complicated sentence, isn't it? What on earth does that mean? And the illustration that Paul seems to be using here is that of a Roman general returning from a military victory. And uh, the Roman general would be at the front of the procession of triumph And he would be followed by his victorious soldiers and behind them were the captives in chains who marched through the the streets, perhaps of Rome. And as they they did that, people would throw incense onto open fires. Now, what's going on here is that Paul is saying that the false leaders who had infiltrated the church at Corinth were trying to influence this church by being impressive. But Paul himself doesn't even try to be impressive. He just wants to point people to Jesus, the victorious general. The one who is really impressive. And he speaks of himself as a captive. Have you got that? And Paul continues by saying that the aroma of Christ's victory caused two very different responses. To some, it's the smell, the, the smell of incense was associated with victory. And to others, it was the smell of slavery and death. 
And you see, when Christians declare the gospel, it's good news to some people. It's a wonderful aroma. It's good news. And yet to other people, that same message is absolutely repulsive to the majority of people here I know this morning. The gospel is the most wonderful thing. It's victorious and it's awesome. And we see Christ's death and resurrection as the most wonderful and life-changing news. But not everyone thinks the same way. And to them, the gospel message, or to many people, the gospel message is nonsense and it's repulsive. And I've got to my eighth point. Hallelujah. My word, this is a hard chapter this morning. It really is. And uh, I've struggled so much this week to try to even understand what uh, Paul was uh, saying here. And the final point here is that a good leader is sincere and trustworthy. Paul refers to uh, the false teachers that have infiltrated the church at Corinth as those who were peddling the word of God for profit. In other words, he was accusing them of being hucksters, people who were only doing what they were doing for money. And at the same time, these hucksters were being critical of Paul because Paul wasn't preaching for money. In fact, they assumed that because Paul wasn't preaching for money, that he can't have been any good. People don't even pay him. And that was their thinking. You see, as we know, Paul preferred to make tents rather than allow anyone accuse him that he was in it for the money. Now, you might have come across a video which has been doing the rounds on social media recently of two American mega-pastors. I'm not going to mention their names, but uh, you know, if you just type something in, two mega-pastors talking about... Well, what they were actually talking about was purchasing private planes for themselves. And the conversation was utterly surreal. It was bizarre. As they claimed that God wanted them to have personal jets. And the reasons are so that they wouldn't have to ride in metal tubes filled with demons. (laughs) They needed personal jets because the commercial airlines are in a mess and would agitate their spirits. Oh, you've got to feel sorry for them, haven't you? Come on. What a load of nonsense, isn't it? You see, there are many people around these days who you could be convinced are doing things for the wrong reasons, for the wrong motivation. And I know those are extreme examples. But we need to take care. A godly leader will preach and teach the word of God, not because of money, but because he or she has been commissioned by God to do that and would be prepared to do it for nothing if that was required, as Paul did. So, let's conclude. Eight points. A good leader is someone who is prepared to be criticized for doing the right thing. Someone who is prepared to be emotionally vulnerable with others. Someone who balances both discipline and love. So important that. Aware of the spiritual dimension of life. Someone who prioritizes the gospel of Jesus. Someone who discerns the will of God. Someone who sees himself or herself as captive. In other words, a servant of Christ, of King Jesus. 
and someone who is sincere and trustworthy. And I know that's a very tall order there that we've looked at this morning. And if you're a leader, uh, a church leader, a leader in some kind of ministry, or someone who's aspiring to become a leader, you might be a leader in the community, a leader in the workplace, or a leader in the family, then Paul has certainly given us something to think through here. This is leadership from God's perspective. There's a world's perspective of leadership as well. But what we've been looking at this morning is what God looks for in leaders. Let's pray together, shall we? Guys, if you'd like to come back and lead us in our final song.